It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. we got a big show coming your way this hour. We're going to be joined uh, by Doug Collins and Matt Schlapp, and they're going to bring us inside what's happening in the Republican Party, as well as Congress. We're in these historic times, whether it's we're talking about the pandemic, whether we're talking about the presidential election, whether we're talking about uh, all-time civil unrest like we've not seen before, before uh, we are in unprecedented times and all types of challenges. But we're up for the challenge, and we're so glad you chose us uh, as a, your one-stop shopping for everything you need to know. Also, welcome your input, one 866 408 So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. People say all the time, oh, we got to get the vice president out of the basement. He's fine in the basement. <laughs> two people see him a day, his two body people. That's it. And let Trump keep doing what Trump's doing. It's hard for the vice president to break through. Unbelievably honest and candid and tragic. Terry McAuliffe talking presidential politics. The Trump team is set to hit the road. The Biden bunch efforting to keep Joe in the basement while his numbers tick up. And the president wants to ride the economy and his rallies to a comeback. Kenny. Number two. We have something that indeed turned out to be my worst nightmare. In a period of four months, it has devastated the world. And it isn't over yet. Thanks, Anthony Fauci. You're always so uplifting. Pandemic. Remember that? Some states free up, and in 14 states, the cases tick up as the conflicting messages from the so-called experts make you wonder if this lockdown and economic takedown were worth it. Number one. The overwhelming majority of police officers and their interactions with the public are positive. And we can't keep saying that the police have a systemic racist thugs that are out there. We are not. Uh, That is Mike O'Meara, the New York PBA president. Disband, defund, and reform. These are the three big terms bandied about in discussing law enforcement in America since the death of George Floyd. We'll discuss this mayhem and the massive pushback by the men and women in blue. And we have a lot to discuss, man. I got nine pages of sound to share with you. But I first want to bring in the Senate candidate and the current congressman uh, from Georgia. He is uh, Congressman uh, Doug Collins from the 9th District. Congressman, welcome back. Hey, good morning, Brian. Good to talk to you. Yeah, uh, same here. You're going to have your hands full today. The House Judiciary Committee is holding a hearing on police brutality and racial profiling. Rarely do both sides, Republicans and Democrats these days, these days seem to agree that some reform is necessary. Do you think there could be a common ground here? I think there could be, and I think that's what we need to have. And we've done this before. Brian, the president, and myself, and others, we worked on First Step Act. We got that done. That's a major criminal justice piece. It never could get done under other administrations, and we got it done, and, and it helped move the ball forward, especially within uh, these areas of sentencing in our, our communities and, and the recycle of, of, 
or recidivism that are, are able to start beginning to, to break. But it's going to take all of us working together, and it can't be a, a session in which, you know, I hope today doesn't turn into a session on just all the things that are bad among the policing community, because that is not the norm of the policing community and law enforcement community. What's normal is that they do their job professionally every day, and as, as the folks have said, you know, this morning, this is the you know the, the small minority of folks that need to be gotten out of the the uh, law enforcement community, so that the ones who do their job can do those right. And that's, I'm hopeful that we can do that. The White House is committed to it. I've talked to them and others, and we just got to find ways that we can do that. So so far, I mean, you look at the Wall Street Journal poll. There's uh, there's a big distrust. There's a perception. Whether it's reality or not, let the stats tell. Perception that there's two, uh, there's two laws of justice, one for blacks, one for whites in America, and even most whites agree that it's easier to be white when it comes to law enforcement. How do you deal with that? Uh, you just have to deal with it honestly. We have to. I've, I've always used something, Brian, that has served me well in life, whether I was a pastor, chaplain in the Air Force still, or a lawyer or anything else, is that perception is reality, and especially in politics. Perception is reality. So you, you have to either you, you can argue with the perception and, and just end up getting nowhere, or you can deal with the perception and find out you know what's causing that perception, how do we move beyond that perception, and if where the perception is real, you deal with it, and where the perception uh, is not uh, real, then you have to you know provide answers there and I, that's the concern that i have right now is that we're dealing in a perception that every time this, these kind of events come up we deal with it through the perception of this is the norm and and the reality is statistics and everything else will bear out that the that the issues like with george floyd are not the norm do we have to need better uh you know work between our communities our law enforcement communities and different communities of color and others in different places yes that is something that has to happen we worked on that a few years ago. It's amazing to me that uh, Chairman Nadler didn't want to pick back up the police working group, in which I was a part of in the last Congress, where we went to Houston, we went to Detroit, we went to, to uh, Atlanta and to Washington, and we talked about how these communities were putting it together. Uh, police chief down there in Houston is going to be on our panel today, uh, Art Acevedo, and he and I have talked about this. We disagree politically on some things, but we but we agree on the fact that law enforcement has to take an active role in their community. Um, uh, to just you know to sort of come ahead of some of these perceptions that are already out there. So yeah, I mean, I'll just give you the numbers. Uh, the Wall Street Journal NBC poll: the views are embedded. They say fifty percent of Americans think there's a lot of discrimination against African Americans today. Thirty-one percent there's some. Compared with seventeen seventeen percent who said there's not much. Fifty-two percent of whites have a better chance. Believe there's a better chance that African Americans to get ahead, up from thirty-nine uh, percent five years ago. Um, so 52% say whites have a better chance than African-Americans to get ahead. That number was 39% a few years ago. So the perception, whether it's reality or not, it doesn't matter. The perception is it's harder today than it was a few years ago. Why do you think that is? I think with the, with the onslaught of what we have seen with uh, voices that uh, you know continue that perception, and I think they you know we look at it. Here's what's interesting that happened and through this administration and through the last few years: opportunity zones, I mean, opportunities for uh, you know uh, the uh, minority communities and, and all communities to you know start businesses, to grow jobs, to do those kind of things, which we have saw. Uh, actually happen is never you know uh, talked about in positive ways it's always talked about as well it could be more it could be this and, and so it's a it's a self-feeding phenomenon here that we've got to make sure that 
we look at lifting up communities and we look to those as positives and we don't take away from the negatives that are still maybe in these communities, but we also don't downplay the, the positive aspects of, of minority-owned businesses, minority voter participation, these kind of things that tend to be uh, belittled in the mainstream media because it doesn't fit a progressive narrative that, that everything is bad and will only be better if something in the future happens, typically something involving government. So right now, I'm just looking at uh, some of the polling shows that Joe Biden has got between an, uh, an 8 and 10 point lead on the president nationally. On battleground states, he's leading in almost every battleground state, including one we weren't considered battleground necessarily, and that was uh, Arizona and Titan, Texas. What could, do you think the president could, what could the president do to, even if, the, the, even if he likes to diminish polls that aren't good, what could the president do to change some of this, these numbers? I think just continue to lead and be focused. Focused on what his administration has been doing. Focused on the, the, the real aspects of before coronavirus. Here are the things that were actually happening in the economy that was the best it's been in, in literally decades. We have, uh, our, you know, the, we have issues of criminal justice reform. We have issues of opportunity zones. Dealing with all aspects of our, our, our communities, not just a single aspect. And when you focus on not only the economic issues, but you focus on the, the fact of our military, our trade standing, and our world standing, and, and focus on those messages, I think that's when the president is at his best. I think we're going to see him in the next you know five months, you know four and a half months, doing that going into November. And there's going to be a stark contrast between what the president uh, has done and what he was able to do, especially in the first two years, as opposed to Joe Biden, who, frankly, struggles to articulate any vision that is just not what is the popular notion on uh, progressive thought at the moment. So that's where I think what he needs to do is focus on the fact that it's going to be, as always, a tough race. we got to get to that November uh, election, and I think he can can do that when he focuses on what the positives are and acknowledges, you know, look, we got a long way to go as a community, but I'm the president that can help us get back to where we need to be. You know, constantly the president's always had friction, whether it's the Mueller report, the Ukraine investigation, the pandemic. Uh, there's been a lot of challenges. You could argue more in these three years than most get in eight. But a lot of people that work for him seem to be uh, going against him. John Bolton, for example. The other one is General John Kelly, former chief of staff. Cut 32 is what he said the other day. I think we need to look harder at who we elect. I think we should start, all of us, regardless of what our our views are on politics. I think we should look at people that are running for office and put them through the filter. Are they, are they, what is their character like? Uh, what, is their, what are their ethics? And clearly he doesn't feel as though we did a good job, the American people, in picking Trump. Yeah. Look, I, I, I appreciate the, the general and his comments, and I also appreciate the fact that I believe he's wrong. And uh, not in the sense of that we need to vet our candidates and do, but I think an attack on the president after someone that you served uh, and to do that in, in that kind of way is, is really, I think, going, you know, riding the tide of popular opinion of those that, you know, maybe, you know, he wants to feel more liked by or maybe he's upset about something he did or didn't do. But, hey, look, we're all entitled to our opinions, and I think what we're looking at is you go into it. Remember, this was a president that under everything that you talked about, under investigations, under, you know, uh, people, you know, leaking and everything else, won the presidency when nobody else thought that, that he would. And then in the first uh, two years with the, the House and the Senate uh, instituted a, a policies that actually helped our economy grow and helped everybody in this country, uh, you know, tremendously. 
And all he had to do, and all that was happening on the outside was how do we tear him down? How do we file suit against him? How do we, you know, try to disrupt this agenda? Don't underestimate uh, President Trump, and that's what I'll tell anybody, even people who want to work, who used to work for him, and now want to be critical of him. And and I think you say let's acknowledge where we're at and acknowledge what the American people are looking for, and they're looking for a leader who uh, will lead. And at the same point in time, uh, you know, look, people can have their opinions, but the voters are the, ultimately the decider in these elections. Right. So I want to move to your, your chamber. you got a big conference today, and then people are looking for some type of, of law enforcement compromise, perhaps uh, reform. Maybe it's extending the academies, working on training, whatever it is. But here's what Nancy Pelosi said when asked. Cut seven. So when you look at the term defunding the police, how do you define it? Well, first of all, I don't pay that much attention to what the president says uh, because it doesn't equate to rea- it doesn't have anything to do with the reality of the situation he's ignoring uh, what we're seeing right before our very eyes denying it wanting us to believe him rather than what we're seeing what's he talking about uh, great question ron I've, I've wondered for many years what speaker pelosi talks about and um you know again gets the answer a direct question what do you think the fund motives it's not very difficult defunding the police means you take money away from your police departments in essence crippling them from doing the law enforcement job they're supposed to be doing and giving it to whatever other program that you want to give it to and for her to say that the, the fund you know implying that it's the president who's talking about defunding police or, or emphasizing, it's not. It is the Democratic mayors and, and council people in cities across this country who are doing that. I mean, that's the biggest deflection I've heard in, in, in many years. Uh, but again, it goes back to, it shows one thing. It's, for, for Speaker Pelosi and the leadership in the Democratic House, it is nothing but the president. Period. End of story, end of statement, nothing else. All they want to do is get at this president, and they start their sentences with Donald Trump is, is not doing right, and they end their sentences with Donald Trump is wrong. And nothing in the middle uh, corresponds to, to what the reality of life is. It's just very frustrating. That's why this 116th Congress will go down in history as nothing but investigations and impeachment and failure. I'm going to be taking calls next, one 866 Before we go... Uh, you're doing very well in the polls on the Republican side as you effort to become the next senator from Georgia. Uh, when is your primary? Primary is in November. On, on general election, the governor decided to put it all on the general election day on November 3rd. So in other words, you're going to run in a jungle primary. Everyone runs on each side? <laughs> That's right. So it'll be the top two. It'll be a Republican and Democrat, and then we're going to have a runoff in Georgia. And uh, we're going to have a Christmas runoff in Georgia in November and December this year. Wow. Thanks a lot. Uh, Congressman Collins, thanks so much for your time. Good luck in the hearings today. Thanks, Brian. Talk to you again later. Thanks. All right. Uh, we come back. It's going to be your calls. And then at the bottom of the hour, we're going to welcome in Matt Schlapp. Go inside those numbers we discussed before. Uh, it's a consequential day this Wednesday on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. 
It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Everybody's trying to shame us into being embarrassed about our profession. Well, you know what? This isn't stained by someone in Minneapolis. It's still got a shine on it. And so do theirs. So do theirs. Stop treating us like animals and thugs and start treating us with some respect. We don't condone Minneapolis. We roundly reject what he did is disgusting. It's disgusting. It's not what we do. It's not what police officers do. Our legislators abandoned us. The press is vilifying us. Well, you know what, guys? I'm proud to be a cop. And I'm going to continue to be proud to be a cop until the day I retire. And that was uh, Michael Mira. He's head of the New York Police Benevolent Association. And he was speaking for a lot of cops who do a great job on a daily basis. Uh, do a great job on a daily basis, and they're wondering where the appreciation or people have their back and say, yeah, Minneapolis a mess, but I'm, I'm one of the 700 who have been injured since these riots started. I'm one of the seven, uh, maybe, maybe the 700,000 that have been working 12-hour shifts, all in order to keep the protesters as safe as the civilians and keep your business from being firebombed the best they can and your police car from being destroyed. Jerry, listen on WOKV in Jacksonville, Florida. Jerry. Ryan, love your show, man. I always kind of let you know that I'm a Democrat. I feel like I have to do that. And I do that so that people understand that we all don't think alike. Um, I can agree with you on some things, and it's my right to disagree with you on others. But I'm calling today. I don't know if you can hear me, but uh, I'm calling today because um, I'm a kid who grew up in Camden, New Jersey. And Camden, New Jersey, has been in news lately because they were actually one of the cities who defunded and demolished their police force. And what they did was they brought in the Metro Police Force, which were newly trained officers, and they were trained the way the city wanted them to be trained. And what happened was, in the last seven, eight years, police brutality, police harassment, those kind of claims towards the police department fell. 95%. And I'm telling you this because as a kid from Camden, okay, statistically, I'm not supposed to make it. 
Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. And what I did for my life and for myself is I used to see, I, used to, I watched my mom one time cry because the cop, I was in eighth grade walking to school, and because we lived near her drug set, I got laid on my stomach, my book bag got emptied, my mom's crying. Begging the cops, letting them know he's not that type of kid. But either way, the cops didn't listen. They did what they did. And I got harassed. I moved to Florida. And I live in a golf co- a, 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 a country club community now. And guess what? I don't get pulled over what? when I leave my community. The cops actually wave at me. I have neighbors who are police officers who are really nice to me. So I, I, cops aren't, not all cops are bad, and I get that. But, geez, the cops who are good have to stand up for what's right and say, hey, get your knee off of that guy's neck. We have him handcuffed already. Absolutely. And why is he on the job with 17 violations, including a fatal shooting? And he was still on the job, making everybody look bad. Uh, Jerry, thanks so much. Great personal story. Really humanizes it. Take your calls again in 15 minutes. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I think given the uncertainty involved uh, and the very uh, fast pace of the infection, especially in certain areas, the original 30-day or so, or, and even maybe with some extensions, uh, measures uh, were appropriate. But I think uh, that as time has gone by, uh, the degree of impingement on fundamental liberties uh, has never been anything like this in the United States. Nationally, forbidding people from engaging in their livelihood, uh, telling them to stay home uh, is just sort of a form of house arrest in many places. That is A.G. Barr, and he, I know we're in unprecedented times. Even for a guy who's done this job before and as experienced as he is, uh, he has never seen anything like this. Pandemic on top of civil unrest with an election just looming straight ahead, coming off an impeachment. Unbelievable. But we shut down for 15 days, 30 days. We're up to 100 now. And if you're lucky enough to be in a state like Florida, Georgia, Texas, Colorado, you probably almost have this in the rearview mirror. But in New York, we bent the curve. We destroyed the curve in particular. And we have curbside dining you can eat outside on Long Island, but not in Manhattan. You can't open up a sports store, but you can open up a liquor store. Oh, we got to stay away from each other. We got to wear a mask. You're not going to be served. We're watching protesters destroy the city inches away from each other, half without face masks. That's allowed, but we're not allowed to go out to eat or buy cleats. Matt Schlapp, 
Uh, I don't know if it's possible to make sense of these rules in this nonsensical time. But as somebody like you who says, I've seen this before, uh, as chairman of the American Conservative Union, where you had one of the first positive cases after your big convention, uh, and a lot of people concerned the president got infected, he obviously didn't. Do you think it's about there's some blowback now on the civil liberties that have been taken away, mostly in Democratic-run states? Yeah, yeah, Brian. And the fake news media, you know, they all said I had corona. I saw people walking up to me saying, I hope you've recovered. That's how that's how impactful fake news and incorrect reporting can be. And that's about the First Amendment, right? The freedom of the press uh, to get it right or wrong. They have that freedom. But guess what we have the right to do? We have the right to pursue happiness. We have the right to leave our houses. We have the right to spend our money. And what's happened in this outrageous overreaction in blue states is I'm in the Commonwealth of Virginia with uh, the governor uh, uh, who was caught either in a Klan's robe or in blackface and then denied it. Uh, You know, he basically has this uh, economy on lockdown. I mean, I can only go out to eat if I sit outside. The mayor of D.C. said that the 4,000-seat capacity basilica of the National Shrine, like one of the most important Catholic churches in the country, she arbitrarily said only 10 people are allowed in this mammoth, huge cathedral. Um, you know, there's an arbitrary nature, and, and Brian, you, you said I'm a conservative, and that's right. I just think it's big government people believing this is their moment to demonstrate how the big government is needed to solve these problems. And really all we need is common sense and some individuals making responsible decisions, and we'll get through this. Matt, my problem is, and I got many of them, I agree with almost everything you said, uh, we, got a thre- we got a governor who thinks he wants to raise me uh, and who is now people starting to realize he's a good communicator, but he's a terrible legislator who has no business experience. He actually said, we're going to get to phase one. We've crushed the curve. But if you start not showing discipline, I'll, I'll lock down again. No, we're not. We're not locking down again. Yeah, you could stop the subway, but you're not going to lock up every single store again because we're not going to fall for it. Because you let protesters go crazy, destroy a city, rock fences, ignore police, attack police. And you're telling us you can only put 10 people in a 4,000 seat church or arena. We don't buy it anymore. Before our eyes, you contradicted yourself. Yeah, that's exactly right. Look, it's uh, it's this idea of what's the government for. And we've got to get back to our understanding of why America was founded. We, we believe in government. I, I'm a conservative, but I believe in the government. And I believe it should do certain things really, really well, like keep us safe uh, and uphold our constitutional rights. But it doesn't have the right to come into my life. You know, in the state of Virginia, I'm breaking the what the what the what the governor is saying because I want to help my friends who own businesses. I want to go to a bar and to a restaurant. If I have to wear a mask every moment of the day, there's no way to eat or drink at these establishments. It's a death sentence for them. Um, you know, so I'm pushing back on this, and especially with priests, I know. Uh, you know, we're talking to them and saying you can't let the government dictate to you. Who can come in the church? What you have to do when you come in that church, and who can? And because the next step is, they're going to limit what you can say in that church, and it's a very slippery slope. We are in very dangerous times. Absolutely, and uh, you know, especially uh, because uh, these churches raise money of people that show up. Let's be honest; they donations. 
And when people don't show up, they don't think about writing a check. They're, it's not part of their routine. So I can only imagine how these churches are suffering money-wise. So just moving on and talking about something like politics and where this might play. We saw stunning job numbers on Friday and possibly a revitalization of our economy for at least one week. But the numbers for the president are declining. According to uh, 538, and even if you don't like this poll, it does show a trend. An erosion fairly broad, spanning virtually all demographic groups. They show Biden 25 points uh, above. He trails Biden by 25 points for women, 14 points. It was a 14-point deficit four years ago. He still leads men by six points, but he's losing senior women, is the President of the United States, who don't seem to like his tone. Uh, We also know he's trailing by about 10 points nationally. Uh, He has to find a way to get back independence, which he won last time. Some of this is within the president's grasp to do, and they are more than happy on the Biden team to let the president have the news cycle. So do you view the president as trailing at this point, like Bush 41 to Clinton, and do you think that it's within his control, this election still? I don't think I don't like the 41 analogy. I like the 43 analogy. Uh, Bush 43 had uh, soft reelect numbers, but was at about the same place that President Trump is now in one reelection. President Obama was at a similar place to where President Trump is now in one reelection. The differences between Trump and Bush and Obama is President Trump is a politician unlike we've ever seen. He gets put in timeout by voters. They don't love everything he says, tweets, and does. They actually mostly like his policies. Uh, but they, they like to disassociate themselves from him in polls. But when it comes right down to a selection between what Trump is trying to do for America and a, the, the Democrat he's running against, you have this group of people that, that support him more quietly than they would tell a pollster. And I think that dynamic is actually a much bigger element of the election of 2020 than it was of 2016. All these Democrats who believe that they should start measuring the drapes in the White House because they look at the head-to-head between Biden and Trump have to simply ask themselves, if you're doing so well with women and senior women and married women, ask yourselves how you're going to do with a Democratic Party that actually wants to stay on lockdown, that actually wants to defund Uh, the police and wants to associate itself with uh, civil unrest, riots, looters, arsonists, and protesters uh, who are violent. Um, Women care about one thing overwhelmingly in polls uh, for the last 20 years, and that is knowing that their families have a future, that their families can be safe, and that this important issue of security right? It's well handled. And I think that actually you're going to be surprised, but you're going to see a lot of these voters realize that Joe Biden and these rioting Democrats are scary to a lot of voters. Yeah, the president does always win when it comes to who's better to take care of the economy. But the pandemic, Biden seems to grade out higher mysteriously because he has been the worst candidate I have ever seen. He wasn't even good enough for third place in his own primary, but he was given it because Bernie Sanders was the alternative. And Bernie Sanders is a fringe candidate with passionate supporters, but he would have gotten crushed because he is a socialist without any accomplishments. So they actually gave it to a terrible candidate. So that's why Terry McAuliffe said this, cut 24. 
People say all the time, oh, we got to get the vice president out of the basement. He's fine in the basement. <laughs> two people see him a day, his two body people. That's it. And let Trump keep doing what Trump's doing. It's hard for the vice president to break through. He needs to come out strategically. And when he says something like he did on race relations two days ago, it needs to have a big impact, thoughtful. And that's what we're preferring that he actually do at the time. So they want him in the basement, Matt. And so far, and you stop me if I'm wrong here, I have not seen the attack plan on Biden yet. I have not seen, maybe the Trump says, I'm going to keep my powder dry. It's the spring still. Summer's here shortly. We don't even have conventions yet. But where's the, they had a takedown of Romney going already on the Obama team on the reelect. How do they attack Biden? Where's the strategy? Well, uh, I, I think I would disagree with you slightly. You might not see it as much in paid advertising, et cetera. But I think there's been a very, uh, a, a very aggressive onslaught uh, of Joe Biden, his past career in support of the 1994 crime bill, uh, which was the impetus for, for the outrageously high numbers of blacks being locked up. Uh, across the country. He called them predators and thugs. Uh, and all of that is being unw- unwound by the Trump approach to criminal justice reform. I think you've seen a rather aggressive onslaught to Hunter Biden, which is the room. Hunter Biden's rec room is the room that Joe Biden is doing all these tapings from. Uh, and uh, and I think people realize the cronyism, the potential criminality uh, that the Biden family has demonstrated. Uh, so I would disagree with you on indicting uh, the political indictment of Joe Biden. Uh, but I do think this. I do think that uh, a pandemic on top of an economic shutdown, on top of race riots, on top of uh, left-wing billionaires trying to separ- split us and separate us and kind of divide and take down America, I do think President Trump, it's almost biblical, the things. I, I keep, we keep, Mercy and I wake up in the morning sometimes and say, are there locusts outside? We don't know what the next thing to hit the country is. And the president has been more focused on simply trying to have a reaction to these a historic events and Brian, you know, uh, eventually we're going to get through each one of these challenges, and the American people have to ask themselves: Who's the right person to bring the economy back, and who's the right person to take the fight to China? I think I know what that answer is. What this uh, pandemic has done is taken away the president's greatest asset: going into cities and rallying people around his cause right. uh, the way he does. Joe Biden thrives in anonymity. The president wrestles with it because he doesn't want it. He wants to be in front of people. In two weeks, the president's going out again. I'm not sure you know, Matt, but are there going to be any precautions, anything different about the next rally, being that we're still in this pandemic? And if the Fauci says we're far from done with it, the worst could be yet to come. I think the first thing to remember, Brian, is that I think Anthony Fauci, I know the president has him as an advisor, but I think for many of us, he's lost his credibility. I'd rather have a quarter in my pocket and flip it to know which thing to do or not do than to listen to the public health experts. They've been wrong 
at almost every step very dramatically. And, and as far as these rallies are concerned, remember, there's still a lot of blue states that aren't open, like the state of Virginia. So, you know, the president is going to go out and do these rallies, but he's limited on where he can go. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the Trump reelection campaign is located in Virginia and the governor of Virginia is doing everything he can to keep everything shuttered down. I don't think it's a coincidence that the governor of North Carolina is doing everything he can to prevent the Republicans from even having a convention. I mean, this is just playing politics like we have never seen before. But look, I think one of the president's issues is, is that he actually really cares about our health. He actually wants to make sure that we don't get sick. He himself is, takes a lot of precautions. I've seen him, you know, being very careful and washing his hands and uh, et cetera uh, at events. And I'm sure that his events will take all those uh, precautions as well. But I do encourage him to get back on the road. America is sick and tired of staying. I mean, Joe Biden might like be staying in his basement, but the rest of us, we're making ourselves sick trying to be healthy. <laughs> yeah, I, it's unbelievable to, to know these small businesses are suffering and big businesses are suffering and people are being furloughed and fired. And yet these governors are thinking politics that haven't been proven, but I am led to the same conclusion as you, Matt. There is no way Cuomo couldn't open up sooner. There is no way that uh, Illinois couldn't have opened up sooner. There is no way that Virginia and Pennsylvania should not be opened up more than they are. And they're just not. And it's absolutely, uh, it's unacceptable. Matt, Brian, thanks so much. Interesting times. Thing. Real fast. Real fast. Yeah. The governor just came out with a four-step plan to potentially open up the schools last night. I'm telling you, he's going to try to not open up the schools in the fall. You need to track this story. I will, uh, because you cannot tell a first, second, and third grader, open up your laptop and go to school. It is detrimental to their development, and they're not learning a thing, let alone the high schools and junior high schools. Uh, But I especially think of the primary schools. Thanks so much, Matt. We're all over it. Amen, brother. You got it. one 408 This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm going to be back with your calls in just a second. Don't move. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, I'm going to be doing Instagram Live today at 12.30 Eastern Time. Be talking about heroes of history. And today I'm going to focus on Lincoln, how he, how he interacts with the focus of my book out on paperback, Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers. 12.30, be there live. I'll be able to comment on your live comments. Uh, Chris, listening online in Virginia. Chris. Hey, good morning, Brian. How are you? Good. Yeah, I'm, I'm calling about the protest. I'm a former uh, sergeant with the NYPD Intelligence Division, and I spent uh, 15 months in Iraq tracking terrorists. And I was talking to your screener, and I was just saying, you know, I realize the primary focus right now is getting everybody healed over this situation, which is tragic. But at some point in time, handcuffs got to go on people that did all this looting and burning down a building. 
Absolutely. They're looking at video right now, uh, Chris. There's a big difference between protests and the riots. Incalculable damage done. People think that just because it's a rich area, they have insurance. They don't. Plus, they've been shut down for three months. Terry, listen on 96.5 in Orlando. Terry. Hey, Brian. Hey, I heard you talking about the um, polls and about Trump being way behind. I just want to tell you, we heard all that in 2016. I went to Trump's inauguration. I waited in line for 40 hours in Orlando when he reannounced. I wear my Trump gear everywhere, and at least two or three times a week, I have people come up to me, and they kind of whisper, we're for Trump, but we're just afraid to get hassled because we're older or this or that. And they say, you know why the polls say he's losing? Because every time they get polled, they lie and say, oh, no, we don't like Trump. We don't like what he's doing because they don't want to be hassled. In November, you guys are going to be shocked about how much Trump beats Biden. Yeah, I think it's within his realm. They're saying their guy is better off not talking. So where Barack Obama went out and John McCain outworked everybody and Mitt Romney was going to create gangbusters and John Kerry, they're saying, no, my guy should stop talking, stay in his basement. And they're bragging about it. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to briankilmeade.com. Get Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers, autographed and sent out. Don't move. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. It's a very important Wednesday edition. We're going to be watching the House Committee on Police Reform that's going to be uh, taking place within our show. We'll bring you some of the sound bites as they unfold, as we always do. Uh, carrying, uh, you know, all the breaking news we can. That's what this show is known for. Uh, and we'll give you an idea of what's happening. It's amazing. Democrats suddenly feel as though they can brave the pandemic to come back for police reform as opposed to put down restrictions to shut down an entire country where they don't want to leave their houses. Uh, I thought we were in the middle of a pandemic and it was time for remote voting, but not for today. So it's, much, it's important enough to do that. Steve Moore in 10 minutes about the state of the economy, an esteemed economist who's got the president's ear, Jack Keane on these generals who are turning on the president, many of which speaking not turned in some cases with General Kelly but and Mattis, but with McRaven, with McChrystal, um, those guys and Colin Powell, just not on board. I want to find out what, what Jack Keane uh, sees that they don't. And of course, uh, I believe the president for the military has been light years better than the best president. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. People say all the time, oh, we got to get the vice president out of the basement. He's fine in the basement. <laughs> two people see him a day, his two body people. That's it. And let Trump keep doing what Trump's doing. It's hard for the vice president to break through. Unbelievable. Can you believe this? This wasn't caught off mic. This was on mic in an interview. Terry McAuliffe used to run the DNC and was governor of Virginia. Presidential politics. The Trump team is set to hit the road and the Biden bunch make an effort to keep Joe in the basement while his numbers tick up. And the president wants to ride the economy in his rallies to a comeback. Can he? Well, look at it. Number two. Now we have something that indeed turned out to be 
my worst nightmare. In a period of four months, it has devastated the world and it isn't over yet. The pandemic. Remember that? Some states free up, 14 states tick up as the conflicting messages from the so-called experts make me wonder if this lockdown and economic takedown was actually worth it. Number one. The overwhelming majority of police officers and their interactions with the public are positive. And we can't keep saying that the police have a systemic racist thugs that are out there. We are not. That is a very calm Michael Mira, who was very beside himself yesterday as the New York PBA president. Disband, defund and reform. There were the three big terms bandied about in discussing law enforcement in America since the death of George Floyd. We'll discuss this mayhem and the massive pushback by the men and women in blue. There's no question that perception is reality. And the perception is that there's two schools of justice in many cases, one black, one white. And you've got to change it while addressing all the race issues that come along with it. Now, People say we've moved on. It was 200 plus years ago. Obviously, we haven't in many cases. And they see the takedown of Confederate statues. It's happening at a dizzying rate. Uh, you see people like the former BET, uh, the founder of BET Network, saying it's time to write a check for 14 trillion, so every African American gets uh, $350,000. Reparations will be done and will be through. Is that the way, or is the debate today? The House Committee holding hearings because this is the beginning of balancing out and giving African-Americans the the perception and reality that everything is equal when it comes to law enforcement. But the way everyone is beaten up on the cops, the way almost no one has come to their defense, the way 700 have been hurt, the way 700,000 are in action, it made Michael Mira dig in in New York. And even though he's speaking for the NYPD, he's really speaking for the entire country. Cut one. Everybody's trying to shame us into being embarrassed about our profession. Well, you know what? This isn't stained by someone in Minneapolis. It's still got a shine on it. And so do theirs. So do theirs. Stop treating us like animals and thugs and start treating us with some respect. We don't condone Minneapolis. We roundly reject what he did as disgusting. It's disgusting. It's not what we do. It's not what police officers do. Our legislators abandoned us. The press is vilifying us. Well, you know what, guys? I'm proud to be a cop. And I'm going to continue to be proud to be a cop until the day I retire. So now the big push denied by Joe Biden and some other Democratic leaders is defund. And in Minneapolis, disband. And they want to run Democrats and say, wait, we didn't say that. That's not what we mean. Well, that's what you mean. That's what the word means. Don't tell me. Use a different word if you don't want me to take the meaning of defund. And what are they doing in New York? cutting the budget. Not because you're in a $9 billion shortfall. That is not the reason. Because if it was, you could have hid behind that and say, everything's getting cut. But you didn't. You say, we're taking money out and putting towards kids programs. Good. That'll be effective. And then in Los Angeles, they were about to have an increase, 6% increase, and said they're cutting tens of millions of dollars out of their budget. They only got 10,000 people for the entire state. You're cutting them. Good luck. Minneapolis, uh, nine out of the 15 legislators vote to disband the cops. And now you want everyone to say, well, that's not what Democrats feel. That's what Joe Biden was saying. Cut for it. No, I don't support defunding the police. I support conditioning federal aid to police based on whether or not they meet certain basic standards of decency and honorableness. And in fact, are able to demonstrate they can protect the community and everybody in the community. 
Really? Okay. Well, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, who has got zillions of Twitter followers, has huge social media presence, has the new Green Deal that Joe Biden basically endorsed, and is an advisor for the Biden campaign, said this. Lots of D.C. insiders are criticizing frontline activists over the possible practical and political feasibility and saying they need a new slogan besides to fund the police. But poll-tested slogans and electoral feasibility is not the activist's job. Their job is to organize support and transform public opinion, which they're doing. Our job as policymakers is to take the public's mandate and find and create pockets to advance it as much as possible. And by the way, the fact that people are scrambling to repackage this whole conversation to make it palatable for the affluent white suburban swing voters against points to how much more electoral and structural power these communities have relative to others just for awareness. She is saying, don't budge. Keep it. Don't worry about the communities, the white communities. So someone should tell AOC that they're not using that term anymore because she doesn't seem to have gotten the message. Here is Kamala Harris, who is praising the mayor of Los Angeles, who cut millions from the cops, cut five. I support investing in communities so that they become more healthy and therefore more safe. The, in, right now, what we're seeing in America is many cities spend over one third of their entire city budget on policing. But meanwhile, we've been defunding public schools for years in America. We've got to re-examine what we're doing with American taxpayer dollars and ask the question, are we getting the right return on our investment? Are we actually creating healthy and safe communities? And I applaud Eric Garcetti for doing what he's done. Really? You applaud him? Well, do you? So, in other words, you weren't applauding him when he was going to increase the police budget by six percent. But now that you've cut it in the middle of uh, civil unrest and fourteen days of protests, I applaud him for doing that. And then he tells us all this, Mayor Garcetti, who uh, I can't see us being shut uh, anything going back to normal until September, the earliest. He's telling everyone to social distance. And then he goes outstairs and takes a knee with black activists. What are you doing? This is the mindset. Just keep in mind, I'm not happy when people aren't going to bat for law enforcement because I am a fan of law enforcement, even though some go south and they got to do a better job of policing the bad ones within their own midst because they know them. They're the ones in the locker room. They see the attitude. They understand what it's like to hang out with them. They see them at events. Uh, they see them at briefings. They know what the problems are. So help us with that. And real quick, before I take a break and I come back and, and we... Uh, we have two guests this hour. I want to get to Stephen Moore, where our economy is. I want to give the perceptions. And I don't, if, tell me if you agree with this, because I want you on the line. In, in, in 30 minutes, we'll be taking calls. The Wall Street Journal did a poll about American perceptions, along with NBC. 26% of Americans see Floyd's death as an isolated incident. 74% view it as a sign of broader problems with police conduct. Even if you don't like it, I'm telling you, this is what a poll came out and showed. A recent survey said 6 in 10 Americans believe that police officers generally treat whites better than blacks. Meanwhile, the views are embedded in a broader public understanding of unequal opportunity about this, about who has a better chance of making in this country. 50% of Americans think there's a lot of discrimination against African Americans today. So it's half the country. And African Americans, I think, make up less than 20% of the population. 31% think there's some discrimination. 17% respond not much. 52% of whites have a better, 52% believe whites have a better chance than blacks to get ahead. That is up from 39% five years ago. So in perceptions, it's getting worse. 
How do we change the realities and perceptions? I want you to weigh in. There are no bad answers. I just want yours. 1-866-408-7669. When we come back, Stephen Moore, an advisor to the president, helped him do his whole tax reform. What the last week's job numbers tell him? And what about this week? Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. This and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. This was a sharp, tough, heartbreaking uh, pandemic contraction. It's not a typical economic contraction. It was like a bad hurricane or a bad snowstorm. There's a lot of heartache in that, and there's a lot of hardship in that, absolutely. But they're sharp and fast, and they recover fast. And we are beginning to see this rapid recovery. No one knows quite for sure when we're coming back or how we're coming back, but they, everyone was genuinely stunned that we had the $2.5 million jobs added an all-time record as we try to bounce back from this voluntary shutdown of a country. Stephen Moore, Heritage Foundation economist, Wall Street Journal writer, co-author of Trumponomics. Uh, Stephen, was last week a one-week respite from this hellacious news, or is it the beginning of a trend? Hi, Brian. Great to be with you. And by the way, you know that uh, Larry Kudlow was the best man of my wedding. So who am I to contradict him? <laughs> but uh, uh, well, I'll tell you one other quick little story. Uh, at 8.30 a.m. on Friday morning, I was on with your uh, sidekick, uh, uh, Maria Bartiroma, on Fox Biz. And she released, you know, we that job report came out, as you know, on, on uh, Friday morning. And Maria, she looked at the report. She said, uh, you know, just going off the press, she had two and a half million jobs created. She kept looking at it. This can't be true. You know, there's something wrong with this report. <laughs> Am I reading this right? But it was right. And what a pleasant surprise that was, Brian, that we saw that uh, that really beautiful report. Uh, now, look, we have a lot of room to go. I'm not I, I'm a little more pessimistic than Larry is about how hard this is going to be, because we've you know, we, we got two and a half million jobs created, which was fantastic. But we lost 25 million jobs. So we've got a long way to go. But this was a nice start. And I didn't expect these kind of numbers that we saw for May until July or August. So we're running ahead of uh, ahead of the curve. One other point I'd make, Brian, that I think is really important. The red states have raced out of the gates uh, for, for states like Florida and Georgia and South Carolina and Texas and Tennessee and Iowa and Nebraska. They're up and running. That's where a lot of the jobs were. I hate to say this because I know you live there in the New York area. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Illinois, not so much. They're, they're way, way behind the curve, and they're doing real damage to their local economies. It's, uh, it's unbelievable, and, it, and uh, it seems deliberate. My view, I don't have proof of it. We just had Matt Schlapp on. He's talking about how Virginia is still under lock and key. They might not even commit. To, they're not even committing to starting schools in September. That's farcical. Uh, because you know what's happening with schools. They don't, need, they don't need food. The cafeterias don't need food. If restaurants are still going to do outdoor seating, that is going to be damaging come fall. 
the speed in which they're opening up as if there is no urgency. It must drive you crazy, Stephen, as somebody who wrote the tax reform to grow the economy. You know, it is frustrating because you go back to January and February of 2020, just three, four months ago, we did have the best economy in 35 years. I saw Joe Biden. Did you see that statement he made the other day? You know, we handed off this great economy to Donald Trump and he destroyed it. I'm like, what planet is he? Maybe he is senile. I mean, what great economy? The economy was basically, you know, hobbled along at one and a half percent growth. Trump comes in, doubles the growth rate. And I want to mention something else that's really important, Brian, for you and your, uh, your listeners. Do you know, I bet you know the answer to this, what demographic group from 2017, from when Donald Trump was elected through the uh, beginning of 2020, what demographic group had the biggest advance in their economic fortunes? You tell me. Guess. Just guess. African-Americans. You got it. African-Americans. African-Americans have massive reductions in poverty rates. They have massive reductions in the unemployment rate. We had the lowest poverty rate ever for blacks. We had the lowest unemployment rate ever for blacks. We had rising wages for blacks. And by the way, Hispanics, not quite as much progress for Hispanics, but nice progress there, too. Why? How in the world, Brian, did they get away with calling Donald Trump a racist president when he did more to advance the economic uh, uh, you know, benefits to blacks in three years than Barack Obama did in eight years? Absolutely. Now, let's talk about this. Uh, The coronavirus pandemic has led to the largest drop in small business ownership in the U.S., hurting black business owners the most. According to a June study, uh, 3.3 million business owners are not are not actively working. Twenty two percent of the closures came from between February and April. Forty one percent of black businesses have closed due to the coronavirus. That's devastating. It is devastating. Look, I I believe, you know, Brian, I've been saying this from the start. I was kind of a lonely voice when I started saying this, but I think most people are coming around to this thing, that that, uh, one of the greatest mistakes our nation has ever made in in, in, uh, 200 years is this lockdown of our economy. And it has devastated all of us, but the people who have been devastated the most are the lowest income people. I mean, I love the chutzpah of the left. The left has been all in on the shutdown. In fact, Brian, you're right. They want to keep it shut down for another two or three months, four months until after the election. The people who are getting flattened by this are African-Americans, minorities, immigrants who come in the country. The jobs aren't there now. Uh, it is. And, and you just mentioned the black businesses. You know, black businesses are the lifeblood of the minority community. You need those black businesses so you can get the jobs in those areas. And so then you compound the negative effect from the coronavirus uh, shutdown to the people who've been, you know, tragically most negatively affected by the rioting, of course, have been uh, blacks and Hispanics as well. Those communities and those neighborhoods and those black businesses that got burned to the ground, it's going to take a long time. You know, I I just came up with this idea, Brad, and I wonder what you think. I think instead of giving all this money to the states and and the governors and and the mayors who didn't keep these businesses safe, why don't we just give the money to the the, the black businesses and the and the you know we should make them whole because they're why give it to the governors and mayors they did nothing to protect these businesses i'm not i'm not against that at all do you think there should be another rescue package kevin hassett of the administration seems to say the answer to that is yes and if so what does it look like 
Well, I, I love Kevin Hatz, by the way. He's a good friend. Uh, I don't want to see a phase four. Uh, we're spending money like it's candy. We've already spent uh, almost $3 trillion. We're going to run a $5 trillion deficit. I didn't say $5 billion. I said $5 trillion. Our finances are out of control in Washington, Brian. If we keep this up, we're going to bankrupt our country and bankrupt future generations. Uh, and by the way, government spending does not stimulate the economy. If the government gives you a dollar, it has to take a dollar away from me to give it to you, Brian. I mean, this is very simple arithmetic. I know liberals can't figure that out. So what I favor and what our Laffer favors and what's Steve Forbes favors and what uh, what Donald J. Trump favors is a payroll tax suspension for the rest of the year. So every small businessman and woman, including those black businesses that have been so injured. All right. Have a- we'll have to leave it there, Stephen. That's that's one good that's one good start. General Jack Keane next. Stephen Moore. Thanks so much. The Heritage Foundation. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. He's quite a man, General Jim Mattis, and for him to do that tells you where he is relative to the concern he has for our country. Do you, do you agree with him, John? I agree with him. There is a concern, uh, I think an awful big concern, that uh, the, uh, the partisanship of, has gotten out of hand, the tribal thing has gotten out of hand. Uh, General John Kelly talking about Jim Mattis rebuking the president because he threatened, but didn't use, to use our troops to get the violence under control because it seems like these governors and mayors weren't able to do it. In 92, I am not sure uh, where my next guest was, General Jack Keane, but he might have known about George Bush 41 using troops in Los Angeles. I can tell you where I was. I was in Los Angeles. And there were troops there, and the news crews all covered the troops. You see them with the sandbags, and I believe there were even tanks there. Joining us now is General Jack Keane, Fox News contributor. Uh, he is an uh, esteemed colleague. And, General, welcome back. I just wanted to get you to factor oh, into great. this debate, as you are still the chairman of the Institute of the Study of War. Uh, where do you stand with this debate? I was very curious, let alone have you on the show, but where do you stand with this? Are you talking about... Uh Using federal troops to support the National Guard and, yes. and police, is that the issue? Yes. Yeah, well, first of all, yes. I, I, I think, given the fact, Brian, that 23 governors and the D.C. mayor activated National Guard troops to support police because they were believed, at least, that they were possibly going to be overwhelmed, and some of them were being overwhelmed, we were already militarizing the police function in terms of trying to curb that behavior. And that's a staggering number when you, when you think about it. It's almost half the nation of governors uh, who, who chose to do that. So to have a conversation, then, it's logical. What is the next step? If the National Guard, who we have limited numbers of uh, in, in certain states, if they're overwhelmed as well, um, should we activate federal forces to do that? 
Well, 12 presidents have done that in the past, and some of them are household names like Jackson and Lincoln and Eisenhower and Kennedy, not so in terms of Lyndon Baines Johnson uh, and, and, and George H.W. Bush, just to name a few who had to wrestle with that same decision. They either activated federal troops or they federalized National Guard, depending on what, they, what we were doing. So to suggest that the president of the United States, given the conditions that 23 governors and the mayor of D.C. had already put troops on the street and they may need more and not have that discussion doesn't seem reasonable to me. It's a reasonable conversation for the president to have. The other thing, it seems to me, is that after three plus years, you think we would get a little used to the fact that the president wears his thoughts on his sleeve and uses rhetoric, sometimes that's charged, before he makes a decision. Some of these I've been involved in myself. I'm, we're going to get out of Syria. We're going to get out of NATO. We're going to get out of Afghanistan. And guess what? While that rhetoric is surprising when it was first said, uh, the decisions do not reflect that rhetoric. Why is that? because he gets advice that gives him information that maybe he didn't have, and he makes a different decision. And in this case, the president rejected the notion that we should activate federal forces. Was there a discussion about that? Yes, there was. We know that. Did he likely favor uh, getting out? I, I think that's possible. I don't know about the discussion, to be fa frank. I can just speculate and read reports just like he favored it maybe at one time getting out of NATO or Syria or Afghanistan. And, but he, we should go by what the decisions are. And I, I'm, I'm sort of somewhat immune uh, president wearing his thoughts on the sleeve because I know rhetoric is one thing and decisions and policy are something quite another. And that's kind of where, where I am. And, and should that discussion be yeah. had? Yes. But I'm, I'm at Brian, so the audience understands. I absolutely believe that using active duty forces is a is a last option. But let's just go back to what Pete Wilson was saying in 1992. He had 35 people already killed on the streets, and he had a situation he thought was out of control. And he needed federal troops in addition to what he had already deployed to protect the American people. And the president supported that decision for one reason and one reason only, I believe to protect the lives of American people. And, and, and it's rarely ever done a dozen times, certainly in the history of our presidents. But I, I think I'll, I'll, I will give them the benefit of the doubt that when they made that decision to use the Insurrection Act, they were doing it in the interest of the American people. General, I hear you. And that was one city. And, we, and that was the decision in one city multiple cities. And if you heard the president on that governor's call, it was like a coach saying, guys, this halftime, you're blowing it. You, you got to show that you're in control. It almost sounds like something that a coach would say or a general would say. You got to crack down. You can't show weakness. You got to show tough. You got to show toughness. Your whole city's going to be destroyed. So Admiral Mullen heard the president say the words, you have to dominate them and said this, cut 34. I think we've reached an inflection point in the country, uh, and specifically uh, to address the issue of racism, uh, which was obvious, the substantial protests 
that were out there mostly peaceful uh, was a very strong message. Uh, and then the use of our mili the potential use of our military to fight our own people, to deploy uh, in the streets, and to use a phrase that the Secretary of Defense used, to dominate in the battle space. Uh, we have a military to fight our enemies, not our own people. So, your thoughts? You know Admiral Bowen, right? Yes, but I, I disagree with him. The, the, the American military certainly yeah. is to protect the American people and to fight foreign wars, certainly, uh, largely in doing so. But a dozen presidents also believe that in rare occasions, because we have riots on the streets that are out of control and the American people are getting hurt, that it has, that level of violence needs to be stopped. And, and on an exception basis only, you would use federal forces to, to suggest that we would never do it or to suggest that their mission is to fight the American people, I, I, I think is, is the wrong thought process. We would only do it as a last resort, and we would only do it to protect American lives. That is, I think, the basis upon which presidents have made this decision uh, in the past. And I think at times uh, we get caught up in, the, in emotions of these moments. And, and I also think at times this situation has become very politicized. It's become more about the president than it has been, than it is about the issue. And the issue was clearly the overwhelming majority of the people uh, in the streets, particularly in the daytime, uh, were, were protesters. But we all know, because we all witnessed it, graphically across multiple cities, that at nighttime, some of the extremists and the hooligans took over. And they turned it... Uh, into an exercise in in destruction and arson. And in the case of New York City, there's a couple of hundred-plus policemen that, that were injured. Thankfully, uh, the overwhelming majority of those did not have to be hospitalized, but none, nonetheless, they were hit by a fuselage of bricks and bottles, and a number were indeed killed and seriously injured as a result of it. And that happened in other cities as well. That's, that's real violence, and fortunately... Uh, it, it did not happen. The president's decision was not to deploy those forces. Yeah. We relied on National Guard and the police, and, and, and I think that was the right decision and the right decision not to do it. It was the right decision to use National Guard to back up police where needed, and it was also the right decision, as we have seen, we didn't need the federal forces and we didn't need the tension that's created when we are deploying active duty forces, and I agree with that, we should only do it under the most serious of circumstances. And when we do it, we should be, we should understand the consequences of it as well. Absolutely, we only got twenty seconds left, but real quick, was it a good move for the president not to ask for Secretary of Defense Esper's resignation? Well, I, I think certainly I was stunned by the secretary comments. I. I think his position and his recommendation to the president, I think, should should stay between himself and the president. I, I've always felt that when it comes to, you know, public life and, and, and serving a president. I, I mean, if you're if you're providing congressional testimony and you're answering to 
uh, the Congress, who are the representatives of the people, and they're going to ask you a direct question like that, then certainly you're going to give that answer. But I think to have a press conference and announce your differences uh, with what he believes the president's position is, is that was the speculation. If that was the reason for that, then right. I, I don't agree with that. As we all know, yeah. the president, Thanks so much. if we accept the fact that he, had, he was leading towards that, he accepted the advice of his advisors not to deploy those forces, not to use the Insurrection Act. Exactly. General, uh, thanks so much. Difficult questions, uh, less battlefield, more politics, but you handled it great as usual. General Jack Keane, thanks. Back with Stuart Varney in just a moment. News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back. I'm going to be on with Stuart Varney on FBN in just a second. You'll get to see my great studio here, and you'll have a chance to see Stuart Varney with me, which we used to do all the time until his uh, show expanded to three hours. It really hurt our relationship. Um, somehow, I'm going to persevere through. Uh, we're watching, too, the House Committee holding hearings on police reform, so we're giving you, you're on with me we're right giving now. you some of the details else, so let's go to Stuart There right you now. go. Look at this way. Look this way. There you go. There you go, Brian. You see? This is the camera to look at. Now then, uh, here's the story, Brian. I need your comment. You need, you've seen all these, uh, um, these cries to defund the police. L.A. City Council President Nuri Martinez, she's part of that call, defund the police, but she's got a big security detail that costs a great deal of money. What do you make of that? 100,000 bucks. She recommended yep. cutting $150 million off the LAPD. You know, they have so many people. There's been 700 uh, officers injured, some very seriously injured over the last two weeks, many of which from Los Angeles. You saw how, uh, how intense these uh, protests were, and they spanned into riots. And instead of turning around and saying, I take my 10,000-man force and women force and salute them, they basically indicated, according to the uh, Police Benevolent Association, that they're killers and we're going to cut your budget. And then the mayor goes out and takes a knee while he's telling everybody else you better stay apart during the pandemic. He goes into the middle of a crowd and takes a knee saying, I'm one with you, Black Lives Matters, and not with the police force who I'm cutting back $150 million from. And then right. the person who recommend him do this is this Nori Martinez who has spent over $100,000 on a personal security detail over the last few months because she got a death threat. How can you do that with a straight face? Go home, know they're guarding your family, and say, hey, by the way, if I, had, if I just passed legislation and pushed for it that's going to affect how many men and women work with you, yeah. work for you, and how many resources you have. Look, I think that most of America is in great sympathy with what happened to George Floyd and is outraged at what happened to George Floyd. But I also think the rest of the country is seriously angered at rioting and looting. And I think that's going to come out in the election because 
This country doesn't like that. And yet we've heard nothing from leading Democrats and big city mayors about chomping down on the rioting. We hear nothing about that. Or, you know, it's, I, I think this comes out in the election. Stuart, I, I think he could be, too. And I also thought, well, we keep hearing this general term because I'm up at 2.30 in the morning and watching the overnight news and all these channels. Well, it was peaceful protests. Really? Did you see Seattle? Did you see Portland? Is this peaceful protest? Do you see what's going on? I mean, Long Island, there were Chicago. some major clashes in anger. Yeah, Chicago, peaceful protests. I don't want to turn the page so quick, but I'm going to add something else. The pandemic and how slow these Democratic governors are to restart their economic engines as compares to the Republicans. Life is full of risks. This pandemic's full of risks. Now you're using punitive uh, delays to hurt your small businessmen and women, from farmers to the convenience store down the block to the person who's going to sell you cleats or running shoes. They can't do it because your governor decides the numbers aren't low enough. In New York City, they destroyed the curve. They did everything that they were asked. And in New York City, we still can't eat indoors. We can't go to a, we can't go to Dick's Sporting Goods. We can't buy a Hallmark card, but I can buy a lottery ticket and get a beer. Why is that? I'm not anti-lottery and not anti-beer, for goodness sakes, but we should be able to do it all. And when we watch the protesters break the pandemic oh, and in the quarantine and the, and the social distancing, we feel like we've been had. I think all those things play out in November. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I, I just don't see how this is going to go, but uh, it's going to play out in November. It's going to be a part of the big election campaign, and that is a fact. Brian, I've got to move on. I'm very sorry, but I've got to move on. You know how it can be. Maybe I'm leaving you a little short here. I, I can tap dance for another few seconds if you really want me to, but I don't think you do. Brian Kilmeade, he's all right, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Stuart. one 408 7669 I'm not sure how much uh, time we have left in the segment. Uh, my clock is temporarily down. I've got two minutes. So let's go to Walter out in Las Vegas. Hey, Walter, you're listening on KDWN, great station out there. What's on your mind, Walter? Okay, I got a real quick observation. Uh, it seems the perception is that there's systemic racism throughout law enforcement. Now, that, said, that sentiment is propagated by the media. What about systemic anti-copism in black neighborhoods? Now, neither is true, but what if that, that concept was propagated by the media? It'll get you thinking. <laughs> it's just food for thought. And it'll change, and it'll change some polls. That's yeah. a great point, Walter. And it'll change polls. So the other thing is, the 75% of African-American children are born to women out of wedlock. And with that number and the economic challenges it is to be single, a single mom in America in any circumstances, let alone adverse circumstances, which is the case, and to not have a mom and dad ideally to give someone, a young, young uh, boy or girl, the best job possible at success, right away, the disciplinarian oftentimes is the police officer. They got to be the bad guy or, or bad uh, police woman coming in deciding this is wrong behavior. And we saw that a lot in Baltimore. And I think we're seeing it a lot. It would be great to attack everything at once. Perceptions, misperceptions, racism. At the same time, the new focus on the family across the country. I would love to see that. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. Meanwhile, I'll take a time out 
in case you ever have to leave your local radio station, get the Fox Nation app. You'll be able to watch the show every single day, see what happens behind the scenes. You see me looking over there, watching the breaking news over on the left when Stuart Varney comes to me. Uh, or you go to BrianKilmeadShow.com, you're able to get the stream. And BrianKilmead.com, you get Sam Utes and the Alamo Avengers. And don't forget Instagram Live at 12.30 Eastern Time today. Heroes in History. We look at this guy named Abraham Lincoln. Don't move. Thanks so much for listening. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City. Information you want. Truth you demand. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. The number to, to be on the show and be a part of it. We love to hear from you. DeRoy Murdoch, he, we're going to be hearing from him. Fox News contributor, great uh, writer. He's with the National Review Online. And Ari Fleischer. I want to get his take on all the Bushes and Romneys and McCain's deciding that still, I guess I should say, Donald Trump will not get their vote. doesn't really matter. George P. Bush is going to vote. We know that for sure. And uh, going to vote for the president. The president actually saluted him on Twitter. I don't know if you know, but the, tw- the president does have a Twitter address. We're going to get to that. Also, today is kind of exciting. At 1230, I do an Instagram Live every Wednesday. It's my last one of a series, uh, Heroes of History. Today, we're looking at Lincoln. And I kind of revolve it around Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers, the book that just came out a couple of weeks ago. Kind of going kind to of peak on Father's Day. It's now on paperback with brand new material. I'll discuss that. Go to BrianKillMe.com and get it for you. And by the way, if you go to BrianKillMeShow.com, you can get the podcast. If you ever miss it, it's there waiting for you. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. People say all the time, oh, we got to get the vice president out of the basement. He's fine in the basement. <laughs> two people see him a day, his two body people. That's it. And let Trump keep doing what Trump's doing. It's hard for the vice president to break through. Wow. Terry McAuliffe letting... What a left-handed compliment. Presidential politics. The Trump team set to hit the road within two weeks. Back to rallies. The Biden bunch effort to give keep Joe in the basement while his numbers, to his credit, tick up. And the president wants to ride the economy and his rallies to a monster comeback. Can he? Number two. Now we have something that indeed turned out to be my worst nightmare. In a period of four months, it has devastated the world. And it isn't over yet. Uh, Thanks, Mr. Doom and Gloom. Anthony Fauci, pandemic, remember that? Some states free up in 14 states. The cases tick up as the conflicting messages from the so-called experts make me wonder if this lockdown and economic takedown were actually worth it. Number one. The overwhelming majority of police officers and their interactions with the public are positive. And we can't keep saying that the police have a systemic racist thugs that are out there. We are not. Can you imagine the frustration uh, giving everything that they're giving and getting this type of ridicule? I'm talking about the cops. Disband, defund, reform. 
These are the three big terms bandied about in the discussing law enforcement in America since the death of George Floyd. We'll discuss the mayhem and the massive pushback by the men and women in blue. You just heard from Michael Mira, the New York PBA president, uh, talking about what's happening, the way the cops are being asked to work 12-hour days, multiple shifts, many of which had not had a day off. There's been 700-plus cops who have been hurt during these riots slash protests uh, across the country, and all they hear is how they got to be disbanded or changed. Imagine that. They don't wear their uniforms to work because they no longer want to deal with the looks and the attitude. Since when are cops not looked up to in our country? They're not all perfect. Old news people aren't perfect, just because I am. Uh, not, no journalists are perfect. I mean, no, uh, nobody's perfect listening right now. Uh, there are people among the 700 to 800,000 that are bad. And I think cops, who are part of the reform, has to be these men and women have to turn in the bad cops. Not because they don't like them, but because, listen, they're making us all look bad. I see him or her out in the field. They don't know what they're doing. Or they're too aggressive. Not aggressive enough. They don't, they're hiding in the parking lot. But what happens is, when you threaten, when you threaten, because some of the reforms they're bringing up is saying that we want to have a body overseeing you and we want your records being public. Okay, really? So if I don't do anything, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to get a demerit or a complaint. Now, there's a domestic dispute or I got stationed in inner city Baltimore or inner city Chicago. Yeah, don't really think I'm getting out of the car. Why? I'm not blowing my pension. I'm not ending up in jail. I'm not going to be the victim of a complaint. I got to keep the perfect record to get off the national registry, which many people are trying to put together. Now, some people are sincerely doing it. Some people are saying, how do I make policing better and more accountable? There's a, there's a reaction to all action. So Tim Scott heading up along with Mark Meadows, chief of staff, and Jerron Smith, who plays a major role with the White House and the president, are going to put together some basic reforms. The president had his summit. They've already had some opinions. Now they're trying to get together a race roundtable, which I would absolutely love to see. Uh, not a bunch of people outing other people, calling people each other racist, but talk about perceptions and reality. So this is what the president's bringing up, a federal requirement for states who receive federal grants for law enforcement to report uses of force that cause death or serious injury, okay? Create a National Criminal Justice Commission to do a comprehensive review of the system. That always works out. Uh, Wrap in justice for victims of lynching act. Expand federal grants to recruit police officers who have similar backgrounds to the communities they serve. That's the problem. If you are 19, 20 years old and you say to yourself, I want to be a cop, why am I even going to college? Or you're 22, you got a criminal justice degree, or you don't. And you go, you know, I really want to be a cop, but I don't think I want to deal with this. $41,000, I go to the academy, and I'm being in the middle of a race ride, being screamed at because of the color of my skin, whatever that might be. The Democrats' reform package uh, was by the, really crafted by the Congressional Black Caucus. leans heavily on the premise that the country's criminal justice system from the courts to the police departments is racist. Uh, and talk about defunding. The Democrats are using the term defunding. In New York City, the mayor is putting less money into the cops. They get, I think, between 6 and 9% of the budget. He's giving them less while painting Black Lives Matter in the middle of the street. So I'm going to disrespect cops, not show up to funerals. They turn their back on them when they see them, diminishing what they're doing, calling multiple times to tell him to back off. His own daughter is protesting in the streets, got arrested. We still don't know exactly what she did. But I know this. I'm watching some of these cops get beat up. I'm watching some of them try to run these other guys down. I'm watching the organization of some of the rioters. 
and they've had it. Here's Mike O'Meara saying, I've had it with being the, uh, the pincushion for the country. Cut to. The overwhelming majority of police officers and their interactions with the public are positive. And we can't keep saying that the police are, have a systemic racist thugs that are out there. We are not. We are not. We are your friends. We're your family. We're your neighbors. We're your coaches of your children. And we come to your homes and we come to your problems and we come when you're sick and we come when you're having an issue and we try to be the good person and try to be the person that helps out in that situation. And 99.999% of the time it works out. And then you have Derek Chavon. And Derek Chavon is going to go to jail for the rest of his life for what he did. And he should. Right. And maybe Derek Chavon, there was a problem in Minneapolis. They knew how bad this guy was. I'm sure we're going to get the stories out. Uh, that they knew that this guy was a bad cop and he had 17 complaints and some of which had were involved with uh, fatal shootings. And maybe they were all explainable up until now. Maybe he was just having a bad day. I doubt it. And I think they knew. Now, real thing, real quick on Derek Chavon. Fascinating to find out they knew each other. Derek Chavon, the officer, and George Floyd, the victim, had a history. Listen to, uh, listen to David Penny who saw them work together and work with them. Cut 11. What kind of history? They bumped heads. How? It has a lot to do with Derek being uh, extremely aggressive within the club with some of the patrons, which was an issue. Is there any doubt in your mind that Derek Chauvin knew George Floyd? No, he knew him. How well did he know him? I say pretty well. So what, were he, what was he doing? He knew, know the guy, even if you don't like him, you know him, you could talk to him, you could eye him. Maya Santa Maria also worked at this El Nuevo Rodeo Club, uh, and they, provide, they provided security. I think they both did one day a week, I think on Tuesdays they were together. This is what Maya Santa Maria said, cut 12. Do you think Derek had a problem with black people? I think he was afraid and intimidated. By black folks? Yeah. Really? So there's more of the CBS report. I'm sure we're going to hear more of it, and that plays a role in it. It doesn't excuse the other cops for going at it. It doesn't include Siobhan for not realizing what's going on. Reportedly, he was ready to admit guilt even before they would put bail of, I think, $2 million on him and put him into jail. I think his wife divorced him almost on the spot, so she's asked for a divorce. Uh, he was going to admit guilt and just plead guilty, and that might have expedited the process. Maybe we could have kept Rodeo Drive and Fifth Avenue together. But for some reason, he changed his mind. That's a story uh, that is yet to be told. I don't want to take too much time away from my next guest, Dory Murdoch. I want to get his perspective on where we're at with race in America. That should be the conversation I'm intrigued by. Just some, story, just some insight. I spent the last uh, year and a half focusing on Booker T. Washington and settling on Frederick Douglass, uh, two incredible people in American history, indispensable people in American history. And I found out from their own words, reading their autobiographies, uh, they lived in the 1800s, 19th century, what life was like as a slave and as they transitioned to freedom and what America was like. Real sense of how far we've come and a real sense of why we're having trouble shaking our legacy. So I'll be able to talk about that in depth, but I want to go over that with Delroy Murdoch coming up shortly. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. His mouth to your ears. It's Brian Kilmeade. It is a sad day when we need curfews in our cities. America's major cities are filled with people demanding this country become more fair, more just, and ironically, more united. Now, too many see the protests as the problem. No, the problem is what forced your fellow citizens to take to the streets. Persistent and poisonous inequities and injustice. And please show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful, because I can show you that outraged citizens are the ones who have made America what she is and led to any major milestones. Be honest, this is not a tranquil time. Yeah, what does that mean? Chris Cuomo saying more ridiculous things. What is he talking about? Yeah, protests do have to be civil. You could hold a sign, you'd yell, I'd rather you not scream in a law enforcement official's face or threaten a National Guard member. Is that getting your point across? Is wrecking a fence and taking a bike rack and using it as a weapon, is that getting your point across? Is destroying Saks Fifth Avenue and gutting Nike, does that help get your point across? I mean, what, why, what do you mean? Of course it has to be civil. You could yell, I mean, you could protest, but I thought it was a given that there's an advantage to being civil. Joining us now is Dory Murdoch, outstanding columnist with National Review and Fox News contributor. Dory, welcome back. Brian, great to talk to you. Isn't that a responsible comment? Who says protests have to be, uh, have to be calm and tranquil? Oh, it's, it's both reckless, and I think he said, you know, uh, who says that or where is it written or something like this. Well, actually, it's in the First Amendment. Uh, we have a right peaceably to assemble, as guaranteed by the Constitution. It's, it doesn't say we have a right uh, uh, violently to assemble or we have a right to go destroy other people's property or set buildings on fire, um, invade and, and incinerate police precincts. Uh, destroy black-owned businesses while supposedly speaking out against uh, injustice against black people, which always struck me as kind of ironic and, and destructively so. Um, and there have been a whole bunch of other people on the left who've apologized for these uh, riots and the looting, uh, try to explain them away, or in some cases encourage them and empower them. And that's been one of the most shocking aspects of the last couple of weeks that uh, we through which we've all suffered. So are you uh, somebody that thinks America should get come to grips with uh, race in America in 2020 and use this as an opportunity to do it? Well, look, I think that we obviously were faced with an almost Olympic class or Smithsonian class example of police brutality with uh, poor Mr. Floyd having uh, Officer Chauvin's uh, knee in his neck for eight minutes, 46 seconds. But somehow this has morphed into now this opportunity for white people across uh, America to, to grope inside, to grope within, to find their uh, inner Klansmen or something like this. Uh, I've got white friends who are saying, oh, I'm, I'm using this as a chance to look at, uh, trying to figure out how racist I am. And you've got people uh, actually getting on their knees in front of black folks and apologizing for being white. Uh, there was an instance 
uh, I forget exactly where this was a couple days ago, uh, of uh, white people washing the feet of black people in a very odd ritual. Uh, this is all very strange. I don't know how we've, we've leapt from this awful example of excessive policing to everybody, you know, white people suddenly deciding that they're racist and they need to expiate their racist demons. Uh, you know, the, the egregious and, and atrocious actions of one man now cause every white person in America to, to think, well, gee, I really am a racist and I need to apologize for it. Um, is this the same racist country that elected uh, Obama president in 2008 and re-elected him in 2012 very comfortably? And this is a place where Brian, not Brian Williams, I'm sorry, Lester Logan on NBC. He's the anchor of uh, NBC Nightly News and has been, and he's a black man. We've got Lester Holt. Tremend- what did I say? I'm sorry. Lester yeah, Holt. Lester Holt. Sorry, I got the name wrong about that. Sorry. Uh, Lester yeah. Holt, I've not watched him in a while. Uh, you've got uh, blacks who are successful in business and entertainment, in, uh, in politics, uh, in athletics, and they're honored, they're revered, people love them, they watch them, they attend their games, their performances, buy their products, buy their books, buy their music, etc. And yet somehow we're deeply bigoted, systemic racism, it's you know, 16, 19 projects, it's like slavery never really ended, and Jim Crow is uh, ready to spring back to life at any moment. Uh, this is absurd and ridiculous. Yes, they're racist out there in a country of 330 million people. If we were 99.9% non-racist, that still would leave about 330 million I'm sorry, 330,000 racists out there. So we're never going to get rid of them completely. But the idea that this is a a deeply racist country from coast to coast, I think is a complete, barbarous, awful fiction. And I I see way too many white folks I know uh, basically blaming themselves for for the awful thing that happened to George Floyd. And I think that needs to stop. That's very unhealthy. And I think uh, it creates unnecessary psychological trauma that just shouldn't be there, especially while we're trying to get our country back together after after the uh, these and we also and know COVID-19. Right. But I mean, when, when you talk about opportunities or perception, I think 50 percent of the country, uh, black and white, think it's harder for uh, African-Americans to get ahead. Five years ago, that number was 39 percent of Americans thought it was harder for African-Americans to get ahead. So we're going in the wrong direction. And Bernie Carrick brought this up of what he observed as a police commissioner, cut 17. There's one systematic issue in this country that nobody's focused on, and that's the slaughter of black men and women and communities of color, be it Chicago, be it St. Louis, Brooklyn, Baltimore, at numbers that are inconceivable, and nobody's paying any attention to it. You want to talk about systematic? Those things are systematic. Look, he's absolutely right. Do you agree? I, I, believe, I totally agree. Look, uh, last year, I imagine we asked the average American, you know, how many unarmed black people were killed by the cops? They'd say, oh, I don't know, 300, 1,000, 2,000. The actual number is 10. Nine black men and one black woman were killed, unarmed uh, uh, people killed by the cops. Now, unarmed included people driving their cars towards the cops in a very aggressive manner and other things like this. So these weren't necessarily people just coming home from, from, from church. Uh, but the number of blacks who killed other blacks, or blacks killed by other blacks, I believe is in the, in the realm of 7,700. So for every unarmed black person killed by the police, 750, 750 black people were killed by other black folks. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't focus on better policing, encouraging good cops, uh, punishing cops who act like criminals, but we need to do something about these 750 other people per black unarmed person who are being killed by other black folks. Nobody wants to talk about that. If you bring it up, you're accused of racism. That's still 750 black lives that matter that are snuffed out by black people. That needs to, be, that needs to end. 
Roy Murdoch, thanks so much. Great insight. Ari Fleischer next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. talk show that's real this is the brian kilmeade show we the national football league condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people we the national football league admit we were wrong for not listening to nfl players earlier and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest we the national football league believe black lives matter i personally protest with you and want to be part of the much-needed change in this country. Without black players, there would be no National Football League. And the protests around the country are emblematic of the centuries of silence, inequality, and oppression of black players, coaches, fans, and staff. Uh, That is Commissioner Roger Goodell uh, apologizing for essentially telling guys to stand during the national anthem. Is that the right move? A guy here who's great for crisis management, and we're in a constant crisis right now, is Ari Fleischer, uh, former press secretary for George W. Bush and uh, president of Fleischer Communications and a Fox News contributor. Ari, did, did the, welcome back, by the way. Did the commissioner make the right move in saying that? I don't think so, Brian, because the problem is going to be if players start to kneel again during the national anthem, you're going to split the NFL right in half. Half the fans might kneel, the other half are going to boo, and why would we do that? You know, frankly, I think the real solution is, and and, and what happened with George Floyd should be remembered, and the NFL would be well within bounds to honor the memory of George Floyd. What I would do is begin the games with the PA system and asking everybody who wants to take a knee to remember George Floyd and to honor his memory to do so. And then when that is complete, ask everybody, invite everybody to stand for the national anthem. That's how I would do it. And I I think that's a way you can actually honor our country and honor the memory of George Floyd. That's a great. That's a great answer. I never quite heard that. I just still also, I think a lot of players will say, "No, nice try," uh, but uh, well, we're kneeling anyway. So, but that's the problem. And if I the think players that, say that, nice when, try and they yeah. want to take a knee during the anthem. The NFL is going to get split right in half. Their fan base, much of their fan base, is going to detest that, and. We don't want that. I mean, the point here is watch the game, play football, let people enjoy it. Let's not invite society's problems onto the field, especially if there's a way to avoid it. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. Uh, the, the women's national soccer team also said we would like to uh, tell you to reverse the ban on kneeling that Megan Rapino was the only kneeler during the national anthem. This is a national team playing international playing other countries, they want the right to kneel. And you know they're all going to be kneeling. And why does it have to be during the national anthem? I think it's perfectly appropriate to protest. It's perfectly appropriate to say what's on your mind. Carve out a moment for that to happen. 
But treat the national anthem as something different and special. Otherwise, you are protesting the national anthem. If you're given a chance to protest at a different moment in time, immediately prior to the national anthem, take that moment. But then if you also kneel during the national anthem, you are indeed protesting the national anthem. It's not just you're doing it during. When you had the alternative and then you still took a knee during the anthem, you're protesting the national anthem. Yeah, I know there's something on the books already for the NBA, but when they come back in Orlando, you know there's going to be something going on there, especially if you just follow the Twitter feed and every team has spoken out. Uh, most of America, 96% of America is horrified by what happened in Minneapolis. Uh, but when they wreck, uh, when the, the when the protests turn into riots and a Rodeo Drive is, is destroyed as Fifth Avenue, you wonder where uh, where it stops. And we saw some violence well, Rodeo in Seattle. Well, Rodeo Drive, Fifth uh, Avenue, I mean, go to other neighborhoods of cities too. I mean, the small bodegas, the small stores, the the stores that low income communities rely on for food, for pharmaceuticals. They've been ransacked and looted. This has hurt everybody. Yeah, I saw that in Chicago they've asked Walmart to stay, and Walmart <laughs> says, we'll get back to you, because the whole place was destroyed and looted. Yeah. Uh, and that's the problem. Uh, we saw it in Baltimore. So I want to move and on and talk about something a little less consequential. Go ahead. It, it, it began with the looting of the, the, the destruction of the 3rd Precinct in Minneapolis. That was the mistake. I mean, it, it began with the murder of George Floyd. Let me start there and with the fact that three four accomplices stood there and did nothing but then when the mayor of minneapolis allowed the third precinct to be ransacked sent the signal everywhere laws on the retreat step forward loot riot and you can get away with it that was the fundamental first flaw uh ari fleischer our guest you recognize the voice Ari, a couple of things. I want to talk about presidential politics, but I also want to talk about uh, generals going against the president. Yes, sir. Um, here is, for some reason, General Mattis decides that that, that we a bridge too far was the president saying, if you guys, governors, don't get your act together, I'm going to send in the troops. General Kelly jumps, and jumps on the General Mattis anti-Trump bandwagon. Cut 31. He's quite a man, General Jim Mattis, and for him to do that tells you where he is relative to the concern he has for our country. Do you, do you agree with him, John? I agree with him. There is a concern, uh, I think an awful big concern, that uh, the, uh, the partisanship of, has gotten out of hand, the tribal thing has gotten out of hand. And, when, and he went on to say this, cut 32. I think we need to look harder at who we elect. I think we should start, all of us, regardless of what our our views are on politics, I think we should look at people that are running for office and put them through the filter. Are they, are, what is their character like? Uh, what is their What are their ethics? So the, General Mattis, General Kelly, joining Colin Powell um, and Admiral McRaven, and roundly condemning the president, and General McChrystal, roundly condemning the president pretty consistently, but they used last week to jump on him again. What's your reaction? Well, one, I, they're a bit different from Colin Powell. Colin Powell has historically voted Democratic, and, and it's cut from a, just these people at least, these generals, did work in the Trump administration. Colin Powell never would have done that, so it's a bit of a different background. But it gives me pause. And I say that because of my tremendous respect for those generals and for the military. Um, 
you know, Donald Trump has the base, and the base isn't going anywhere. But in order to do well, you need independents to agree with you. You need ticket splitters. You need open-minded people to say, you know, maybe he's a little tough, a little rough around the edges. Sometimes the president can be offensive, but he's doing a lot of good things for him. You don't want to lose those people, too, because then it's a sign of you're just the base. And that's never good in America. You've got to be able to build bridges to people who don't always see things your way. So it gives me pause to hear people say things like that about President Trump, and I hope President Trump can take it to heart. There, there's a time to tone it down, and he has delivered on policy. There's no question about it, and that's one of the greatest strengths of the Trump presidency. But sometimes it can be too hot to handle, and I think you're hearing that from the generals. Yeah, I also, as General Keene was with me last hour, he said, have you met the president? He was used that because the governors were letting these, these rioters run rampant. Don't make me come in there. Uh, I'll use my troops. That's the way he talks. And for General Mattis to break his silence and break his word, he said, basically, why now? And that's one general to a general. Uh, he didn't use the troops. He says, from his perspective, so many times, like, I'm taking my troops out of Afghanistan. I'm going to take them out of Iraq. He waits a day, they talk about it, he listens to it, and he decides to compromise. That's clearly what was going on here. Anyone who's been watching Trump for the last few years knows it, but I guess for that general, it went too far. I just question his line in the sand. Uh, let's move on and talk about, go ahead, final thought. Well, and I supported what the president did about the troops. He's absolutely right. As a last resort, yes, he had to have the troops ready as things were getting worse. You know, there was that video of the woman in Rochester, New York, who a bunch of thugs broke into her jewelry store, beat her up. Her husband came out with a golf club to try to defend her, and they beat him up. Ask those people if it matters to them if the people protecting their store are Rochester police, Monroe County police, the local sheriff, a federal agent, the National Guard, or a private in the Army. To them, it makes no difference. They just need a protection. And if there is no protection, then as a last resort, the use of the military is appropriate. So I do think the president has, it's, it's, has high ground yeah. on that one. Right. And also, yeah, also, that's a message to the mayor. It's not okay. To the governor, it's not okay. You might be in a different party, but it's not okay. And I'll That's do right. something about it. That's Call what out the your president guard, protect does. your people. So right now, if I'm um, reading the New York Times today, and they basically say through the 538 poll, the president's trailing uh, Joe Biden by about 10 points. And he's trailing on, uh, he's using, as you mentioned, independence before. And he's lo- losing now uh, white high school educated voters. Now, can he reclaim that? We'll have to see. But the most interesting thing, I think, in this campaign is the less we see his opponent, the better his opponent is. None other than Terry McAuliffe agrees with that. Cut 24. People say all the time, oh, we got to get the vice president out of the basement. He's fine in the basement. (laughs) Two people see him a day, his two body people. That's it. And let Trump keep doing what Trump's doing. It's hard for the vice president to break through. He needs to come out strategically when he says something like he did on race relations two days ago. It needs to have a big impact, thoughtful, and that's what we're preferring that he actually do at the time. Do you agree with that? Oh, Terry nailed it. From a Democratic point of view, that's exactly right. If you can make this just a referendum on Donald Trump's presidency, it's great for the Democrats. If you make this a choice between Biden and Trump, it's great for Trump. 
And that's the task of every re-election campaign, uh, particularly if the president is not very popular. And President Trump is 42, 44 percent job approval. He needs to get that higher. So the more the mainstream media especially just keeps the only focus on Donald Trump, the more all Trump's got is the base. If it's an actual choice between Trump and Biden, things will start to turn around. Have you seen a strategy yet formulated from Brad Parscale and company on the Trump team on how they're going to go at Biden? Well, yeah, I think that, I think all the ingredients are there. I think they tie Biden ideologically to the far left wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, the Democrats are going to give people a lot of pause, and that's one way actually of helping back in the suburbs and with independents and with women. Uh, and you have to get the president back on the trail. The idea of the president going back and starting to do the rallies makes wonderful sense. And that will also start to pressure Biden. How long can he hide? Uh, we need a normalcy in America when it comes to electoral politics. This hiding in basement that Biden's allowed to get away with has really been to Biden's advantage, interestingly. And that's the strategy. Get Trump back on the road, and you've got to turn Biden into Hillary. Uh, and find a way to do that. And the other issue would be race. For some reason, Republicans have been content with getting 9 and 10% of the African-American vote. I never understood it. Uh, and especially historically, it used to be just the opposite up until the 1960s. So now Mitt Romney suddenly realizes, I want it. why do Republicans have this vote, which I find fascinating. But do you believe the president should follow up his law enforcement panel with a race relations panel? I do, and I'd like to see the president speak out more thoughtfully and softly about the racial problems in our country. Uh, you know, presidents have two roles. One is to be the law and order president and to keep us all safe. But two, there's a soothing role to the presidency to address some of the fabric of our society issues. And I would like to see the president do that. Um, and I hope he would do it in a way that's more reflective of not his standing and stakes politically, but of where the country is morally. And that's a task for the president, but it's part of the job of the presidency. So, yes, Brian, I do think that's important. I think the president also, number one, you got to recognize he did better than McCain and he did better with, than Romney among African-Americans. And I think that he had a chance, particularly prior, prior to corona, to get about 15 percent of the African-American vote, thanks mostly to young black males. Biden's given him even more opportunity to grow that when Biden tells people you ain't black. Trump needs to get back to that, and I think he knows that, and that's why I'd like to see more of it. All right, I, have I worn you out? Are you done? You have to like call it a day now. I've brought you around the globe through politics. Uh, have I worn you out? It's all just another day, isn't it, Brian? It's just. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's incredible. We start with sports. And what I used to do. This is this is a White House briefing was forty five minutes, thirty minutes of who knew how many questions on who knew how many topics. But uh, yeah, I mean, as hard as it was through the Iraq War and the nine eleven attacks, I notice as hard as it was doing your job, they were a lot more civil when yes. when they were dealing with you, yeah, and dealing with Dana. Yeah. Don't you agree? And Tony? I do. And it's really a reflection of the terrible animosity between the press and 
president and the president and the press. I mean, it's it's a two-way street. Uh, they both seem to enjoy traveling it. Uh, it was pretty rough and nasty back then, though, too, Brian. I mean, I think it was slightly more behaved, better behaved, but particularly toward the end of the Bush years, the war criminal. Don't don't think for a minute that they weren't easy. Or they weren't tough on George Bush. They were. No question. Uh, the, he remembers that too. Um, sure. Uh, and by the way, not true that he's not voting for Trump, even though I don't think it's likely he's voting for Trump. He, it was unlike him to weigh in, and the New York Times had it wrong. Ari Fleischer, thanks so much. You got it, Brian. Great to be with you. All right. The great Dan Bongino is testifying right now in front of Congress on this uh, law enforcement panel uh, that's going to the committee meeting that's taking place right now. We'll bring in some of those highlights and more when the Brian Kilmeade Show continues. You're with Brian Kilmeade. is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I've got gangbangers with AK-47s walking around right now, just waiting to settle some scores. What are we going to do and what do we tell our residents other than good faith people stand up? It's not going to be enough. Thank you, Alderman. Next question. Well, no, I want an answer. I that, You commented on everybody. I want an answer. It's not something you ignore. This is a question that I have. Well, f- we no offense, well, f- then. Who are you to tell me I'm full of And if you think, if you think we were not ready and we stood by and let the neighborhood go up, there's nothing intelligent that I can say to you. Well, maybe you should come out of and see what's going on. Is that unbelievable? Uh, what you're witnessing there is the meltdown after one of the biggest disasters in American history of uh, killings and shootings in Chicago on one single day, and you have an incompetent mayor who just went out to protect the so-called upper-middle-class neighborhoods and let everybody in certain ends of Chicago kill each other. And that is raw, and that's real, and that's exactly what took place. The numbers will absolutely blow you away of how much of a pounding Chicago took. They had 50 aldermen meet with the mayor... And that was the alderman that just had the, the meltdown. That was Raymond Lopez. 132 officers were injured on May 31st. 48 shootings, 17 homicides, all in one day. And this mayor cavalierly says, you don't know what you're talking about? I know what I see. I know what I read. If those are the facts and no one disputes it, you are a disaster. Go get another haircut. I'm Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade, uh, I want to see you at Instagram in 30 minutes. Uh, meet me there. We'll go live. Your thoughts. We're going to talk about heroes of history. And thanks so much for listening to this show, Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.